Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Psalm 131. So you want to grab your Bible or a Bible from the pew in front of you. Uh, and uh, and uh, we're going to dig into that short little psalm today. I always get nervous when I'm going to share a story like the one I'm about to share because it dates me. But I am a, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. And so the summer of 1991, Pepsi had a promotion called the Summer of Chill. And it was full of all these like festivals that they had and it was full of all these like promotional, like commercials, it even had a hand motion, all right? And here's the thing, it had a license to chill. And you could get this card, a license to chill. Here's what I need you guys to know, I have one. It's in storage somewhere, I would have brought it to show you, but I am currently licensed to chill, still licensed to chill. Uh, I remember desperately wanting one of these. Like, like the marketing geniuses knew exactly what was going to get preteen Jocelyn because chill in the early 90s was a thing, right? Like if you were going to chill, it was a little different. It meant you are going to like kind of relax. You are going to be cool. You were going to slow down. You were going to maybe hang out with your friends. You were gonna, weren't going to do anything too exciting, but you were going to chill. You were going to chill out. It was a good thing, right? And, uh, and I, remember, I remember really wanting this license because I thought being chill was being cool. It was the same thing, right? Uh, and I remember like really showing my license to chill to the people in my band class, which like automatically made me unchill. But I was really proud of my license to chill. It filled up my, you know, 13-year-old wallet, which seemed cool too. I think you got discounts with it. I literally have no idea what you were supposed to do with this. But here's what I thought. Wouldn't it be great if this was all it took? Right? Wouldn't it be great if you could be like, hey, I, I'm licensed to chill, fully authorized here, so um, it, let, me just, let me just step out and calm down, you know. Let me, just, let me just relax. It wouldn't be great if all you had to do was show your license and you could disconnect, you could chill out, you could relax, you could have effortless, cool. I think about how much of our lives are really designed around that idea of wanting to chill out or wanting to relax. I remember it hit me really strongly my sophomore year of high school when we were reading Death of a Salesman. And, uh, and there's this moment where a character in Death of the Salesman uh, named Biff, and he, he starts complaining. He says, look, I work for 50 weeks of a year just to get two weeks off to do what I want. I work for someone else. I spend all my time and all my effort on something I don't want to do for 50 weeks of the year so that I can get two weeks of quiet and calm to myself. And that panicked me. <laughs> it panicked me enough that it has stuck with me, <laughs> right? That somehow we spend all of our time waiting to get these moments when we can have our time to ourselves and we can be quiet and we can relax. Our days are built around this, right? Most of us get up, we go to school, we go to work, we, we do what we need to do so that we can come home and we can turn on the TV and we can be with our family, we can relax. Even, even that those scales start to expand, right? We work a week so that we can get a couple days off on the weekend to ourselves to relax. Or we, we work a whole year, right? We, get, we, we plan our years so that we can do the things, put in the time, give the effort, strive for what we need to strive, and then get those couple weeks off um, in the summer when we need them to do what we want to do. Even our entire lives right, are built around this. I'm going to put in those, these decades that I need to put, into, put in so that I can get in my retirement the years off that I want to get off to relax and do what I want to do with my life. What if the Psalms had something to say about this longing in us 
Like this rhythm that tends to be in us that we, we have work and then we want to have rest and we have striving and then we want to chill out and relax. And what if the Psalms actually acknowledge, what if scripture actually acknowledges that we as human beings have a deep and true desire for quiet and rest and calm and contentment? And more importantly, what would it be like to re- realize, to recognize that it's been God's plan all along? for us to find contentment and quiet that our souls long for. In today's psalm, the poet is going to talk about just this, but he's going to take it, the poet's going to take it one step further. He's actually going to say it's not just chilling out that we want, but we actually have a deep need for inner contentment. And our souls are hungry for inner calm. And we all know this, right? Because we all know either currently in our life or there have been times in our lives when we are like striving and we're going into anyone on the outside, someone could look at you to a casual observer and say, hey, they got it all together. There's challenges in their life, but they're making it work and they're figuring it out and they're dealing with what comes to them. They got it good. But that if you took a microscope and you looked deep inside to your innermost being, they would see something much different. They'd see something turbulent and chaotic and struggles and and something completely unchill, right? Something completely not having it all together. I had a prof in grad school uh, that was part of his syllabus, and I took multiple classes with him. It was part of his syllabus that twice a year you had to come to his office hours, and you had to sit down, and there was one question on the agenda, and that question was, how is your soul? And that question freaked me out, you guys, because most of the time I didn't know how to answer. And the times that I did know, answer, know how to answer, I'd be like, I would look like a complete mess if I tell him how my soul is. But how is your soul? Might, might this scripture have something to teach you and I about the, the calm and the quiet that our souls crave? So Psalm 131 is one of the shortest chapters in the whole Bible. It's one of the, chap- the, the four shortest psalms that there is. It's very poetic. It's full of imagery. It's full of metaphor. It's full of poetic devices, which means we have our work cut out for us this morning. So would you read Psalm 131 with me this morning? Here's what the scripture says. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, I do pray that in this scripture today, your spirit uh, might work in our hearts, that we might know you as the one who calms and quiets us, that we might know you as the one who cares for our souls, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, once again, we're just going to follow this poem uh, straight through. We're going to take it verse by verse. It's just three simple verses. We're going to see what the, the poet wants to walk us through. So we'll start with the first verse. It teaches us about a rejection of pride. The second verse, it's going to teach us about quietness of soul. And the third verse, which is an encouragement for others. So let's go ahead and start in verse one with a rejection of pride. Look back down at your Bibles. Look at this, what this first verse says. It says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So notice the psalmist begins by addressing the Lord, all capital letters, so Yahweh's personal name. This is the name of God. He turns to his, his, his God and he says, hey God, like my personal God, the one that I know. And it's, what's interesting is there's a lot of psalms that start with, oh Lord, or oh Yahweh, but they're almost always cries of lament. And, and, and we saw it last week. They're almost cries of like, come help me, but this is different. The psalmist is crying out to the Lord. He's, he's addressing him about something different. He's getting the Lord's attention, and he wants the Lord to know that something has happened. And he has this threefold negative declaration, threefold negative de- declaration. And they're, you ready to learn a word? They're synecdoches, not schenectodes, but they're synecdoches. Some of you English teachers in here are like, yes. Right? A synecdoche, right, is, a, is, a, is when a part of something stands in for the whole. Right, and so he's going to talk about these three things that are standing in for the whole. And look at the first thing he says. He says he's saying no to. The first thing he says is, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. So in the, in the Hebrew conception, your heart wasn't really your emotions. It wasn't really like how you felt. In their conception, the heart was more about the seat of your intelligence, the seat of your decision-making and your will. And so he's saying, he's saying something about the mind, more like we would use the word mind. And he's saying it isn't raised up. It's not lifted up. It's not extended beyond where it should be. It's not increasing past its limits. It's not reaching for more than. He's saying that, that somehow his heart had made this conscious movement to, to come through and strive and, and to reach. His, his thinking was going higher than it should have been, and he's saying, I'm done with that. Some translations, not our translation we're reading this, this morning, but some translations actually put here the word, they say that my heart is not proud. And that's exactly what the psalmist, what David is talking about here. He's saying, I'm rejecting a lifted up heart. What he's really saying is, I don't think more of myself than I should. I'm not thinking I'm, I'm more than I should. I don't think of myself as greater than I should. And then look at the second thing he says no to. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. Well, your eyes in the Hebrew assumption, again, this is another synecdoche, he's saying his whole self, they had more to do with how you looked out at the world. They kind of had this interesting conception of how your eyes worked. But he's saying here, and some translations say, my eyes aren't haughty. My eyes aren't looking out at other people and saying I need to compare myself to other people. I'm going to look down on other people. I'm going to think of myself as superior to other people. It has to compete and make itself content with like the way that it views itself in, in the, the self has to make itself content with how it views itself in the company of others. And so here, the psalmist is saying, look, I'm not lifting myself up so that I think more of myself than I should, and I'm also not thinking less of others than they deserve. So it has to do with how he relates to himself and relates to the world. He's saying, I'm no, I'm a no to like thinking of myself as super important and being proud. And I'm no to thinking about other people as being less than me or not as cool as me or not as good as me. And so I'm not thinking about them less than they deserve. And then he has this three, this third negative statement, declaration. He also says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
no, we got to deal with a poem. What does that mean? What are things that are too great and marvelous for me? We need to know that when those two words, the, the words for great and marvelous, when they appear together in Scripture, they always appear together in a description of God. They always appear together when they're describing God. So you've got Psalm 8610, where it says, the psalmist says, you are great and do wondrous things because you alone are God. Those are the same words there. Or Psalm 136, where it says, God alone does great wonders. Right, and so there's this picture that the, the psalmist is saying, I am not striving for things that belong to God alone. I'm not reaching out for things that, that, that are in God's, that are part of the divine, the divine character. I'm not going to strive for things and reach for things and occupy, turn my attention to things that are past me. It's not preoccupied with greatness or accomplishments. Not preoccupied with appearing great and wonderful and important in the world. Do you know that um, one of the things that you, you learn when you work with teenagers is they're highly motivated by extrinsic factors. So they're highly motivated by things like wealth and image. And what they're learning now is they're highly motivated by a desire for fame. A recent survey asked, um, asked uh, kids and teenagers age 6 to 17 what their most desired profession is. Do you know what it is? It's YouTuber. Kids' most desired profession today, by far, is to be a famous YouTuber. As a matter of fact, they ask kids, hey, if you could be a famous YouTuber, would you be it? And 75% of people age 6 to 17 said, yes, I would love to be a famous YouTuber. That would be the, most, the best thing that could happen to me. So interesting that we have in us a desire to be important, a desire to be seen, a desire to be recognized, to achieve, to, to demonstrate some kind of success or proficiency in life. And so when the psalmist says here he's deliberately turning away from that, he's saying he's turning away from, one commentator says it's like turning away from pursuing impossibilities. Because you can't chase after things that belong to God alone. And what are those things? Well, it's things like trying to manage your life and your world as though you have the same power, resources, wisdom, and control that God has. Let me say it again. It's trying to manage your life as though you had the same power and wisdom and resources that God has. And the psalmist says, I'm turning away from that. I'm no longer going to think of myself as better than I should. I used to do that. He says, and I'm no longer going to look down on other people as though they were somehow less than me or as though I was somehow better than them. And I'm no longer going to say that I can live in my life as a small God. I'm no longer going to approach my life as though I have the resources and the wisdom to manage all of the circumstances in my life. So he's turning his back on these things. And in summary, they all kind of come together to say that the, the psalmist is really rejecting a prideful way of going about life. To be, to be prideful is to be absorbed in yourself. To think that your perspective is always right, to think that you always see all sides to everything, to think that the way that you understand the world is how everyone should understand the world. To be prideful is to convince yourself that you are independent and autonomous, that you are capable of controlling all outcomes, or that you should at least desire to control them. And the problem with pride is it's not just that you think that about yourself, but then you think that somehow you're better than other people in certain ways. And so we tend to do this, some of us who are really good at pride, like we're really good at like subtle pride, what it turns into in us is the way that we look at other people, and so we tend to envy, and we tend to nitpick, and we tend to complain, and we tend to grumble because we're reaching to things 
too great and wondrous for us. We think the world should bend itself to our will and to our way. We think that somehow, intrinsically, we know what is best. And so it looks like being self-trusting and superior and headstrong, attempting to live the impossible, to control all the circumstances of my life and my loved one's life. It manifests itself in a thirst for achievement, filling out that resume, filling out that college application, a desire for acquisition, to have all the little things that you want to have, and unsatiable appetites. I want the things that I want, and I need them now, and I deserve them. And if you could see the world that I saw, and you see the world the right way, the way that I see it, you would know that, that I'm, I see the world correctly. And that's what pride says, but the psalmist is saying, I'm turning away from that. He said, I say it, I've said no to all those things. I'm not doing those things anymore. And because he's not doing those things anymore, he can, he can transition into the next verse, and he can have this key, key change, and the change comes like this. Read verse two with me again. He says, but instead of all that stuff, instead of trying to achieve and succeed and prove myself, instead of that, I have, what, calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's important for us to point out that this is not a spontaneous change. It's not like one morning the psalmist woke up and goes, you know what, I'm way calm today, right? My soul is super quiet today, I don't know what happened, right? That's not, that's not what happened. You can't imagine that somehow that on a dime, the psalmist figured out a way to change her way of life. And instead, there has been somewhere in here an alert, conscious chosen learning to embrace a quiet soul, contrary to a soul that's stirred up and reaching and striving and wanting. We should talk about what the soul is. Unfortunately, we are from a, a, a Western culture dominated by kind of Western ideas, and so unfortunately for us, that hurts us in understanding soul because we tend to have this idea of soul that comes from Plato and it comes from the ancient Greeks, and they had this conception of the soul that, that it was just this kind of immaterial force that animated your material body, right? And so that when you die, your material body dies, and then your, your immaterial soul just kind of lives on and persists, and that's not the biblical conception of soul. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about soul. So the, the word for soul is actually the Hebrew word nefesh, and it kind of has this root that has to do with your breath or your throat. And sometimes the word is actually used to, to describe your throat. So it has to do with this kind of, this, this, this um, what keeps us alive, right? What makes us who we are. And so the scripture will also refer to a gathering of human beings as a gathering of souls. And what it's really referring to is what makes you, you, it's referring to your inmost being, your insights. What, what makes you most essentially you on the inside is what the Bible's really talking about when it talks about soul. And so for the psalmist to say he has quieted his soul and calmed his soul, he's saying something important about what's on the inside. So that word calm has to do with a leveling, to make level. I grew up as a kid, we used to go uh, to Lake Michigan, and there were days we were allowed to swim in Lake Michigan, and there were days we were not allowed to swim in Lake Michigan. And you guys know what the difference is, right? 
it's, it's waves, right? When the lake was calm, when the lake was level, it was safe to let the little kids go in. But if the, the, wave, the, the, the lake was churning and the waves were big, then we couldn't go in. This is exactly the image here. The psalmist is saying, but something has happened so that his soul is now calm. It's level. It's not churned up anymore. And he also says it's quiet. So let me tell you, quiet is a thing that I have learned to value over the years because I haven't been an apartment dweller for so long. Um, this is the first, you guys know I moved, so this is the first place I've lived where I haven't shared a wall. I could tell you stories. I even debated about whether to tell them today, and I was like, Jocelyn, you're going to waste too much time because <laughs> they just, they're endless, right? They're endless, the sound that comes through the walls and the ceilings of the floors when you live in uh, shared housing. And so it matters to me when I see this word that he has quieted his soul, that's a word that resonates with me. Because he's saying there's a, there's a, there's a calmness, there's, a, there's an end to the complaining and a contentment that has come over him on the inside. It's somewhere on the inside that the, the stuff that distracts and the stuff that irritates, that that stuff has, has ended and the waters have become calm inside. There's a commentator, David Paulson, who describes a quiet soul like this. He says it's not noisy inside. It's not busy, busy. It's not rush, rush on the inside. That a quiet soul is not being obsessed with achieving a certain outcome or a certain recognition. It's not being obsessed with, with making, uh, making it through to a desired result. A quiet soul is not always on edge and doesn't always feel pressured. A quiet soul is not shaped by a constant to-do list. A quiet soul is not preoccupied with what it has to do or say next. A quiet soul is not letting irritation and disdain devour it. A quiet soul is not haunted by failure. A quiet soul is not stumbling through a minefield of blind longing and tears. So can I ask you a favor? Like, when's the last time you felt like that? Can you just think for a second? Have you ever felt like that on the inside? Have you ever felt like, like your soul was, was calm and not churned up? Have you ever felt like if you looked on the inside, the outside may be swirling around, but the center is still and quiet and settled? If you're like me, that's rare. It's rare for the volume to get turned down for me on the inside. And I, I like the times when it does. It takes me a while to get there. But the psalmist is going to point us to how do we get this calm soul? How, do we, how, do we, how are we able to say no to lifting ourselves up and say yes to a calm, quiet soul? Well, notice the second verse is pointing us to something very important because it's telling us that this quiet is learned in relationship. The quiet is learned in in relationship, and specifically like a, a relationship that's defined by the metaphor of a child with its mother. It's a common picture in the Bible, God as parent. His people are his children. As a matter of fact, what's kind of hidden for us in this translation is that the picture is not just a, a, a child with its mother, but it's a child carried by its mother. It's a child embraced by its mother. It's a, it's a child comforted by its mother. So it's not just with him. It's not like by her side. It's that the mother is holding and embracing and carrying along her child. This is a picture in Scripture several times. In Hosea, God says that he lifts his children into his arms. He lifts his people up. In Deuteronomy, we're told that he carries his people 
on his shoulders. In this picture, David sees God as a nurturing mother ready to embrace and be embraced by the one she cares for. It's tender, it's intimate, it's profound. And let me tell you, this is a picture that I'm familiar with because as a long-experienced babysitter and a pretty baller aunt, there's nothing that I love more, nothing I love more, than handing over a fussy child to their mother. <laughs> Is it not the best feeling? <laughs> right? It's the best feeling, right? Oh, you're lovely. Oh, you're upset. Here. <laughs> Right? Let, me, let me give you away. The, the psalmist, listen guys, we can joke about it, but listen, this is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying she is handing over her soul to God to take care of. That what's bringing the quiet and the calm to her, to the psalmist, to the poet, whoever it is, what's bringing the calm to the, to the poet is that she's handing over her soul, her soul to someone who will nurture it and carry it and care for it. The soul is like a weaned child. It's contented. This is the central picture of the psalm, a contented child. Now, the, scholar, the scholars like to debate. What is the meaning of that word weaned? Because it could be translated to mean sated or satisfied. So the image here, the, the picture could be that a child has been well-fed and cared for and is now resting quietly and peacefully with his mother. Or... It could be that the word here is actually translated best weaned, so, so that the child no longer requires its mother's food to, to exist, right? So the meaning, the meaning of the word could actually mean that the child has reached an age where it doesn't depend, where he or she doesn't depend on, on her mother for sustenance. And so now, listen, so now because, it's, because the child is weaned, it seeks out the mother's warmth and embrace and nurturing care, not for what the mother provides, but because of who the mother is. And so child's make, ch children make this shift, right? They no longer rely on, on a mother to meet their needs, and now they rely on their mother because they love her, and they need her. And I just I kind of love this image. Whether it's, whether it's one or the other, I love this image that somehow the psalmist is saying, I've learned that, God, you're not just about providing for my needs, but I love you for who you are. And the scholars point this out. There's a, a scholar named Arthur Weiser, and he says, just as a child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the psalmist, after struggle, has reached an attitude of mind that in this he desires God for himself and not, desire, and not desiring God as a means of fulfilling his own wishes. So either way, the metaphor, the central metaphor of this poem is a child who has found calm and quiet and rest in the arms of a loving mother. And the, the invitation then is to see ourselves as children who find calm and quiet and rest in the arms of a loving God. And this contrasts with verse 1. <laughs> Right, because verse one is someone lifting themselves up, reaching for more, trying to be God in their own lives, trying to make things happen. And instead, that contrasts with a quiet soul who says, look, I have learned that I can love God for who he is and that he cares for me. And it's not just that God cares for us, but that he carries us. One of my indelible memories from the only time I've ever visited Disney World was those like stroller corrals. 
where there's like, I don't know, 100,000 strollers in the park, and they, they have to park the stroller so you can take your child on a ride or do whatever, and these strollers, man, they are like the Mercedes of strollers, where they've got the big old wheels, right? Sometimes they've got the double wheels. They have like 145 cup holders. They have all these little slots for you to put stuff in. They've got the fan with the mister right on the bar. Like these strollers are hardcore, but here's what I need, you need to know. In David's day, in the psalmist's day, there weren't strollers. You didn't, you didn't push a kid in a stroller. What did you have to do? You had to carry your child wherever you go. And there's pictures of this. There's art that exists from that age in this place of, of two ways that parents carried their children. They'd strap them to their back or they'd put them on their shoulders. So the picture is that God carries you and I through the challenges of life. And so we reach verse 3. And there seems to be this abrupt shift Look back down at verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Here's what happens. The psalmist has stopped talking to God, and he has started talking to you. The psalmist has stopped talking to God, and now in verse 3, he started talking to us, and here's what he says. He says, I've been writing this poem. I've been trying to describe for you a contentedness that comes in the arms of God, a quiet soul, and I'm trying to do it in such a way that it would encourage you to seek the same contentedness. And what does he say? Oh, Israel, he's talking to God's people, those of you who belong to God. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Some translations say what? They say, wait on the Lord, both now and forevermore. Here's what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is actually saying, this takes time. He's actually saying, don't stop trusting God. If your soul is churned, if your soul is the waves on the lake going crazy and it's loud and it's noisy, he's saying what? He's saying, don't stop hoping in the Lord. Keep waiting on God. You will see him carry you. You will see him quiet your soul. Psalm 131, you'll have noticed the superscription, is that it's a song of ascents. That's a description that applies to a subset of psalms in the book of Psalms. There's 15 psalms that are labeled a song of ascents, Psalm 120 to 134. And though there's some debate, best guess is that means these were songs sung by pilgrims as they were making their way to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem for the three main feast days in the Jewish calendar. So they had these three feast days they had to go to Jerusalem for. And so can't you imagine families getting together and strapping a baby to their back or carrying a child as they go up and they're walking? And they would sing these songs as they went. So can't you imagine they're singing this song of contentedment, contentedment in God? And what's important for us to recognize here is that this is a song that we sing on our way. This is an encouragement that comes to us while we live life. I don't think this poem is describing some sort of blissful attachment, detachment from the world, right? It's not kind of going, okay, well, I'm trusting in God and like, I'll just like let go of all the crazy of the world. No, it's a pilgrim song. It's a song sung by people like you and I who are sojourning through life and figuring it out. And so this is not some meditative state. The psalm isn't describing some stoic indifference to the crazy of life. It's not talking about there's having an easygoing attitude. This psalm, you guys, is not, don't worry, be happy. That's not what this song is. 
This song is a pilgrim song, and it's describing an experience of contentment that comes within the crazy of life, that comes within our relationships and our problems and our actions. And the psalmist is saying, keep trusting in God, you guys, because what he has found over the course of his life, if this is David writing, what he has found at the end of his life here is that he is saying, look, I'm done reaching for stuff that's beyond me. I'm done trying to play God but I've quieted my soul because I love the Lord and he cares for me. So where does your noisy soul come from? I mean, do you have a noisy soul? What is the noise inside you? Do you long to chill out? Are you irritated or weary or despairing or busy or preoccupied? Would you desire the quiet rest that comes in the arms of a good God? Because here's what it turns out. It turns out that the psalm is implying something critically important. And it's saying that what stands between you and I, what stands between us And that quiet soul is actually ourselves. Did you see it? What did the psalmist have to overcome to find his quiet soul? He actually had to say, I'm done thinking of myself as better. I'm done thinking that my needs define the world around me. I'm done reaching and striving and trying to control everything. He realized that what was most important, the thing that was standing between him and the quietness of soul that he needed was actually himself. He was getting in the way. And so the biggest problem for us becomes ourselves because what we realize is we turn into the fussy, screaming, demanding infant, shaking our fist at the world and complaining that it's not bending itself to our will. And the psalmist says, you gotta, we have to stop doing that if we want a contented soul in the arms of God. If it's true that this was a pilgrimage song, then it's certain that Jesus would have sung this song many, 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 many times. We have evidence that this this song would have been part of the the yearly rituals of of a community, that Jesus certainly was familiar with the words of this song. And I can't help but think that that this psalm might shape some of Jesus' words elsewhere. Because Jesus is going to point to our need for the same contentment of soul. He's going to point to our need to the same, like putting away our striving and stop pretending that we're better. He's actually going to say you're more like children. And because you're like children, you need to know the quietness of soul that comes from me. And so this is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He is in a particularly turbulent time in his ministry. And it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but revealed them to little children. He's talking about you and I. And he goes on to say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Undoubtedly, Jesus is thinking about this psalm when he asks you and I to come to him for rest. He's, he's painting himself in the picture of a mother with a child. Jesus is painting himself into the image of saying, hey, come and rest, let me, let me embrace you and let yourself be embraced by me. Because here's the deal, you guys. Jesus did not just come to save souls. He did that. And he does that, and we trust him for the salvation that comes as we turn ourselves over to him. But he came for something alongside that. He didn't just come to save souls, but Jesus came to actively care for our souls. He came to care for your soul right now. He came to look at your innermost part and to give it calm. He came to treat it. He came to love it, to restore it, to give your soul rest. Salvation and trust in Jesus is not just for the forevermore. It is for the now. And I can't help that if you think that if you're a little bit like me, man, wouldn't it be great to know some of that quiet and that calm that comes in relationship with Jesus? He loves you and he cares for you and he purchased you with his own blood. Not just for some future date, not just to punch some ticket where you can like get into heaven one day and now here on earth you can strive and reach and, 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 and activate your own desires, but so that you could know the level, calm contentedness that comes from knowing him as the Lord of your life right now. Jesus reminds us, Jesus reminds us that we come to him as little children. We can't come to him another way. Is your soul quiet? Let's pray. God, I do ask that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to us right now that in these, uh, pass- in these words of this passage, that those who need to be encouraged may be encouraged. Those who need to be challenged for a prideful way of life may be challenged. Those who are desperate to find some calm and some quiet on the inside, that they would find it in you. Lord, I thank you that these promises are for all of us. So God, I ask you that you would remind us of your love, that you would embrace us, and we would embrace you, and we know what it means to you for you to care for our souls, that we might find rest in you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.